0: now that we've been isolated so long, that we're starting to take out our anger against our home assistants, like Alexa and Google Home. Oh, you said home assistants. I thought you meant like kids. Our technology assistants, the Alexas and the Google Homes and the series and stuff like that. Have you ever found yourself doing that with these devices? I mean, a little bit. It's more just because they respond randomly when I don't Mean too, especially Siri. One woman who uh, uses both Siri and Alexa for simple tasks, she said, my relationship with them has been a little volatile because sometimes they're not cooperative, but being home for two and a half months definitely escalated it a bit. When you ask Alexa to turn on the light and she doesn't do anything, I tend to just yell back profanities at her. And probably works like a charm, I'm sure.
1: Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts.
2: Welcome to Touchpoint, specifically to episode 179, or literally to episode 179. Anyway, I am
0: Reed Smith, that is Chris Boyer. Uh, Specifically and literally, I am Chris Boyer. (laughs) Very specifically. Or as some people say, pacifically. Uh, That's on the West Coast, not the East Coast.
2: Thanks for coming back. Thanks for tuning in after the holiday. Hope you had uh, a great Fourth of July break. I know we did, although didn't do much, but sometimes that's the best kind of break. It's a literal break. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. We certainly appreciate all the support and all the, I guess, support over the years and certainly over the last several months as we've all kind of been uh, in this alternate uh, state of of reality or the new reality. Um, It's been very encouraging to see that uh, people are still listening matter of fact, more people are listening now than they were before. So hopefully you continue to find this show and the others uh, as a great resource. Learn more about this show and the other shows. You can actually go over to touchpoint.health. That's the website. You can dig into the show notes for this particular episode. You can also check out the other shows and find something that you'd like to listen to. Let's take a brief pause and then we'll be back with today's show.
0: And build a reputation that performs for you. So lately, we've been seeing a lot of articles, posts, even podcasts that are talking about empathy marketing, particularly in healthcare, and how empathy marketing is a key to success in the post-COVID world. And we've talked about empathy marketing before, haven't we, Reed?
2: Surely. We've talked about everything at this point, I think. <laughs> well, true. So we're hard-pressed to find something that we haven't. But yes, we, we have touched on this a number of times before.
0: Well, yeah. And as part of various different approaches that you could take when you're brainstorming a new marketing activity or even doing some design sessions or whatever... But embracing empathy marketing is a little difficult at times because it's, it really is a discipline and it's sometimes a l- very much misunderstood. And I know that our, our good friend Amanda over at Cleveland Clinic, who's been out there and, and her team is really a, often seen as one of the leaders of doing empathy-based marketing in healthcare. When we talk about what's going on at the Cleveland Clinic, it's often followed quickly by, yeah, but they have a team of hundreds of people that do writing. (laughs) And so how can we even do that? Any of the big brands, whether it's Cleveland
2: Clinic, Mayo Clinic, there's, you know, the Kaisers of the world or Hopkins or whoever it may be. It becomes a, a default to say, "Yeah, but they have the it's apples and oranges. We're different, you know, whatever it is." And quite honestly, and, and I'll let everybody in a little secret: everyone says that doesn't matter the size, the type of organization, or whatever. Everybody's kind of
0: has that "yeah, but" kind of scenario. Putting that excuse aside, so to speak, today let's let's focus a little bit in on empathy. What does it mean to embrace empathy in your marketing? Why it's a little bit hard to do, and what can the quote-unquote average healthcare marketer do to begin going down this path? Because we know it's important.
2: So to, to kick us off, let's define empathy. Because I think in growing up, certainly, you have conversations and you know, you're know you very empathetic towards somebody. or And so like the difference between empathy and sympathy is an interesting one, right? But anyway, Merriam Webster, she's good at defining things, defines empathy as the action of or capacity for understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to. Anybody that's gone through and has the same feelings, thoughts, experiences of another person. If you can empathize with somebody, like for example, if you have a chronic illness, you can empathize with other people that have the same chronic illness or maybe a different type of chronic illness. You you have, the, you have empathy for them. You've been through some of the same life experiences, uh, etc. Whereas somebody with sympathy, it's kind of the same thing without the experience. You feel sympathy for, right? It's, it's kind of an act towards versus an experience of.
0: It's interesting as you define that, Read I think about when we in healthcare and other industries, I'm sure as well, when we start to think about empathy marketing, which is really understanding your customers and then crafting product solutions or whatever to address those feelings that they have, a lot of times we may, as marketers, we may be doing more sympathy-based marketing rather than empathy-based marketing, by that definition you just said, because many of us do not have that sort of that understanding. Mm-hmm. They haven't walked the shoes of our patients, so to speak.
2: Yeah. So let's, let's dig in. I think you know this first article that's over on entrepreneur.com, a brand's greatest currency in a
0: pandemic, empathy and purpose. And this kind of highlights the importance of embracing empathy marketing. And interesting enough, this article, it actually focuses on a study that PepsiCo did. A different brand than healthcare for sure. They released a study called "The Empathy Imperative: Consumer Perceptions on Brand Empathy Through a Pandemic."
2: Are we sure? Because everybody's getting into healthcare. Are we sure they're not in healthcare? <laughs> Just want to make sure. Uh, an interesting study, nonetheless. And one of the th- first things they call out is that they found that four and five respondents believe that empathy has become more important in light of the public health crisis. So prior to this pandemic. 43% of Americans describe the nation as empathetic, but the figure has since risen seven percentage points. So we're up to, you know, half the people out there. And they also talk about that nearly 94% of Americans say that empathy is important generally, while over half, 56% of those surveyed said that brands using their marketing to address the
0: pandemic is an actual act of empathy, which is kind of an interesting idea. PepsiCo actually developed five ways that they're going to actually start to shift their marketing to become more empathetically focused.
2: Is the first one using the words unprecedented times? (laughs) That has to be in there because everybody uses it. So that has to be one of the top ways to be empathetic.
0: Unfortunately, no, but that is a good one. We should probably add that. Maybe that's number six. But the, the first one is treating people with respect, 52%. Treating people like human beings which I would think that those kind of fit together, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe not. Listening to people is number three. Caring about people is number four. And then the fifth one is acknowledging when the brand is wrong. Those are what they call the top five ways consumers are asking brands to be empathetically involved.
2: So it seems to me like one through four is pretty much the same thing. Treating people with respect and caring about people so, one and four seem awfully similar. They're treating people like human beings, I guess you kind of have to define what that means exactly. And then listening to people, I think, would be a, a way that you care about people and a way of treating people with respect. All of those are kind of intertwined in my mind a little bit. You know, acknowledging when the brand is wrong is an outward action based on doing some of those other things. If you're listening to people, if you're caring about people, you will then acknowledge when you're wrong, or hopefully you would. They all kind of intermingle in the same space to some degree.
0: We encourage people to go click the link in the show notes and you can actually download that PepsiCo study because it's very fascinating. They try to differentiate between those, but I agree with you. But when we kind of position this against healthcare brands, Reed, I would say that almost every hospital's and healthcare organization's brand vision embraces those.
2: Yeah. Visions, values, uh, things like that, you will you will find
0: that absolutely does make a ton of sense. So empathy and these empathetic characteristics are very important. So let's talk about empathy marketing. And let's get into why it's sometimes hard for us as marketers to embrace, which turns us to a, another article that we found off of AMA.org. And this one was actually published last year, but I still think it's relevant. It's called, How Does Empathetic Marketing Make You Feel? And it starts off by saying that research shows that empathy helps designers create more unique and innovative products, and there's reason to believe it can help marketers move away from fixation to better relate to consumers you know, back to that earlier definition you had to move away from sympathy marketing to more empathy marketing.
2: Yeah. And they mentioned here that it would make sense. And there's reasons to believe that marketers could benefit more if they would stop and just ask the simple question of how, how would this make the consumer feel? So in healthcare, how would it make the patient feel? How would it make the referring physician feel? How would it make the employee feel? But those actions get us to a better place of understanding not just the quantitative, but the qualitative part of kind of what we're
0: doing and how well it's working. They contrast this against like hard data. I know we're, we try very hard to be data driven in our industry, but they say that this empathy approach actually supplements the, the quantitative aspects of what we're doing. One of the challenges to empathy marketing is that marketers sometimes need to get out of their own way. Often we have marketer bias. They they gave a great example. They say the best empathetic practices aren't all that different from choosing the perfect birthday gift for a loved one. Think less about what you would want and more about how it would make the recipient feel. Yeah, that's fine, but
2: it's really more about what I would want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely, and, and you see that a lot. Anybody that has kids, obviously, and talking about the birthday presents and stuff like that, yeah, you, know, you may think like. Seriously, like what in the world? Like this is stupid. Like this would be the better option, the better brand, the better idea, the better gift. But you gotta put yourself in the shoes of the kid, and you know, that's where, you know, about the what the recipient would feel. They also talk about an overview of importance on empathy and marketing design that Kelly Heard, a professor of marketing at the University of Connecticut, And Ravi Mehta, a professor of business administration at the University of Illinois, ran five studies to test the effects of empathy on design. They published it as an article uh, in the Journal of Consumer Research in 2018. When the study subjects were prompted to imagine a user's feelings which is an interesting concept to prompt people's, you know, what is the user feeling? They produce more creative and original, but still practical ideas compared to when subjects were simply asked to design something for a particular audience.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. And even one of the authors of the study says the reason it works is because thinking about others' feelings makes you more cognitively flexible. It makes you more mentally agile. And so that mental agility transfers into other things that might happen particularly in the development, either in the design or a marketing strategy. These studies also reinforce the one thing that can get in the way of this empathy approach, which is that bias. When marketing managers were prompted to think empathetically, they were more likely to say that the customer's preference were the same as their own, even ignoring any kind of input data from their customers by market research or whatever
2: we all carry some level of bias anyway just in our lives certainly influenced by preferences influenced by the way we grew up you know whatever whatever it is where we live etc our certain you know financial situation and so it's interesting to think about you know because really we're just people that are that are acting out these things and so we're we're carrying that level of bias into our jobs and kind of what we do And we're kind of built as marketers to think about personas and developing for a persona. You know, do we have enough empathy built into those personas, I guess?
0: Yeah, or in that persona development. And, you know, one of the things that you should think about empathy marketing, not necessarily as the output of your process, it really is more of a problem-solving tool. Often, unempathetic behaviors toward customers or unempathetic language in marketing is as a result of poor internal culture and low engagement internally. If you work in an organization with poor culture and low engagement, you may have trouble being empathetic. You think that's true? I do know that if you're in an organiz- if you're in an environment where you're not being valued, if there's poor internal culture and low engagement, that you're probably not good at many of the things that you do because you're just under motivated. Yeah, that's probably fair. Why don't we do this, Read After the break, let's come back and let's talk about what are some of the beginner steps to start to embrace empathy marketing. And then before we jump to the interview at the end of the show, uh, we'll share also another article that has some tactics on what we can do. Let's do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media.
2: All right, back from the break. Let's talk now or turn our attention to how to do it, some tips, some tactics, etc., The first article that we're going to be talking about, it's a practical one. Certainly go check it out in the show notes, but from marketingprofs.com, The Role of Consumer Empathy in the Future of Marketing.
0: It really puts to light the fact that marketing has to evolve. And they even say up front that marketers have spent a lot of time on the old ways of marketing, which is, you know, more promotional in nature. And we don't have to revisit that. We've talked about that all over and over again on the show. But if you want to move past the promotional aspects of marketing and even moving past, like just making sure you're hitting your marketing KPIs... Empathy marketing is a step towards effective marketing. It's the process of getting to know your customers so you can build an ongoing relationship between your company and those customers. And I think that's the always the golden ring that we're all trying to reach as marketers.
2: Yep. More stuff. More billboards. <laughs> so the first thing they talk about in this uh, kind of four, four steps, if you will, or four prongs, is to put yourself in the uh, consumer's shoes. So healthcare it could be the patient's shoes, it could be the caregiver's shoes, it could be the physician, you know, it depends on what, you know, who we're talking about, certainly, but to put yourself in their shoes, talk to them, listen to conversations they're having online, gain feedback about what matters to them now. And this is where we've seen some of like the chatbot solutions really come into play. They're gathering all this conversational data, not just, you know, somebody went to this website or this webpage the most, or they spent the most time here on your site, and you're making some assumptions You're actually talking to them. And we've done this historically, obviously, with like focus groups and things like that. But how do we have conversations with these uh, individuals, these consumers, and uh, understand really what it is that matters to them?
0: Right. And then more so is to use that knowledge to create content or create experiences to help them solve that problem, educate them or inform them, whatever it is might be coming from their empathetic state, right? From where their their emotions are at and really ultimately in some way to improve their experience with your organization, with your brand, which really leads to another factor here which is to be authentic. They say 86% of consumers say that a brand authenticity matters when they're deciding which brands to support. So if you're using consistent empathetic messaging across your marketing and all the different channels that you use, and you express a focused set of brand values, not these just generic values, not the unprecedented times kind of values, but more those are related to what you're doing, that will help you embrace this empathy marketing ideal.
2: One that comes to mind to me that's done this well is a grocery store chain that's only in Texas called HEB. Of course, they're only in Texas, so they've they've kind of really leaned into the pride component, right, of being Texan and that kind of thing. But their, their commercials, their advertising is really interesting the way they talk about where they get their beef and the beef department and this, that, and the, you know, so th- they're being authentic and they're talking about how, you know, they're a part of this landscape. And I think, you know, it really draws people in Now, certainly their stores are nice and they have a lot of product and a lot of selection. And I think their prices are probably competitive and that type of thing. But like they've really become this authentic organization and it's, it's served them very well. Third piece here, build trust through uh, thought leadership. You know, thought leadership is an interesting one. And in, in when you think about how, and we're doing it right now, right? We've been doing it through this podcast for some years. They say to provide well-researched. Well, maybe we aren't doing that through this podcast. But <laughs> but uh, well-researched, truly helpful content to your consumers consistently. And I think the consistently is the hard part. Two thirds of people will stop using a product if they don't trust the company behind it. Healthcare specifically, you think about all the misinformation that's online. You think about the evolving landscape of not just coronavirus or COVID, but just, you know, chronic illness and different things like that. There's a real opportunity to understand and own certain spaces, whether that's in your market uh, or more as a whole through thought
0: leadership it's about trust. And trust is a tricky thing. And it's really hard to build trust with various different audiences unless you own your brand, own your brand position. And then uh, the, the thing about consistency is so important. Because I think about the early stages of this pandemic, when all the healthcare organizations stopped going in market with their messaging, and they turned to crisis communication, that actually could have had an impact on the trust that they have built over the years with their customers because they just kind of went away for a while. And then sure enough, when they came back and they said, we're back open, come on back, they're now having to kind of restructure the way that they're going to start to build trust with their customers and start to get them to re-engage with their care. And that's really the fourth point here, which is about just keep that connecting because empathy marketing is not something that just happens once and you're done. Your content marketing strategy, it should help you to keep connecting with customers. And if you're really being empathetic and you're, embracing empathy marketing whatever you do what that thought leadership content you put out is addressing your consumer's needs you're going to see how they respond to that and then you might have to shift after that so this is an iterative process this keeps going on and on and on and so you need to keep connecting with your customers from here forward that's what you have to do
2: absolutely it's a uh, rinse and repeat scenario for sure All right, finally, we're going to jump to one last article here before we uh, go into the interview, and it is from business2community.com. It's published just a few days ago, titled How to Use Empathetic Marketing in Your Social Media Strategy, so kind of where the rubber meets the road, and they share four ways any business owner or marketing person can build social media presence with more empathetic content marketing.
0: And the first one they say is to create an empathy map, and we've heard that term before. But they actually list a series of questions here. I'm just going to list them off here, read, and let's, let's in our minds think about it. The first one is: is why would you as a customer need my product or service? That's a really great way to get to the root of the feeling of why why would you need us? How does interacting with my brand make you feel think? do or say. And those are important terms, right? Feel, think, do or say, because those are all separate actions that have emotions behind them. The last two are, what are some of the stressors or fears in my life? Oh, now that's an important one to think about. And we've been thinking a lot about that through the pandemic as healthcare organizations. And then lastly, how does my product service help you reach your goals? Those are four great questions to ask, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. An empathy map while we do customer journey mapping and things like that is a, is a great supplement to that. So the next element, tap into your customer's emotions. So don't play into their fears to sell product or service, but rather think about how your product or service makes them feel and how you can position your brand in a helpful, stress-reducing way. So I think this obviously collides with what we do in, in healthcare uh, pretty substantially. So again, we don't want to market from a fear-based standpoint, but understanding kind of where they are in their journey and, and thought process and position services and, and resources you may have to help reduce that stress.
0: I'm reminded of the early days when we were doing different types of uh, persona groups through, through CRM. And there was one persona group that we would have that say they're, they only react to fear-based marketing. And I think that this kind of flies in the face of that, right? If you think about it, you don't want to play into their fears. You don't want to say, come in or you might die. What you need to do is you could say, look, we, we're here to help. It kind of shifts the, the whole positioning. One of the other tools here, they say, is uh, to use, because we're talking about social media here, they go right to it. Use social listening to your advantage. As you listen to your followers you can gain valuable insights into what they like, what they don't like, want, or need from you. I mean, just, just social media is great for that because they're out there talking about you. You just need to get a social listening tool to get that information. And bonus, you not only get information on how your company is performing, you also get the opportunity to address customer service while you're at it. So there you go. It's kind of a two for one. Win-win is what we like to call that. And then finally, inspire customers
2: to take action. So we always talk about in, in the importance of marketing around calls to action and uh, you know, actually activating people to go do things. And so uh, they talk about showing your customer you believe in them. It's an ideal way to increase that social media reach and engagement. Think about the product or service you offer and how it could help them potentially utilize your offerings to add value to their life or educate entertain them, et cetera, whatever that may be. Uh, and if it's, uh, you know, they say, quote unquote, down to earth, considered approachable, more heartfelt emotional message is, is the way to most effectively speak to customers. So again, in healthcare, you know, let's move away from some of the jargon, some of the harder to understand, read, spell words, and just talk to them as, as real people based on, you know, what we know and how they're
0: feeling. And those words resonate so strongly, particularly now that we're in the awards season and all these U.S. News and World Report ads are out there. We want to get away from that. We want to actually speak to what their feelings are because, uh, you know, everybody's in kind of a tough spot right now. And whatever we can do as healthcare brands to build back that affinity with our customers and really be empathetic with where their feelings are at that's that's a win win it's it's a lot harder to do than we are talking about i you know i really wish we could say that the 30 minutes that we've been talking paints out a really strong picture. But I had the chance recently to sit down with Steve Koch, who works for Cast and Hue. The, the Cast and Hue is actually a user-centered design firm that has worked with a lot of healthcare organizations across the country. And he actually shares some of his experience working with organizations in developing solutions where empathy is a strong part of the design process that they do. And it'd be really interesting for us to kind of hear a little bit about some of the stories that he has. And uh, so let's do that. And then we'll be back at the end of the show to uh, wrap it all up. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast, and today I am talking with uh, someone that I, I actually got to know you over the phone, Steve, but in the few conversations, or it's really become many conversations that we've had, right. I feel like you and I are, are very like-minded, and, and I appreciate getting to know you, and I look forward to a day in the future where we can actually meet each other in person safely, and that's Steve Koch. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so
1: much, Chris. It's uh,
0: it's great to join you virtually yet again. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, Steve, many people listening in may not know about you. Do you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your background?
1: I am a co founder and senior vice president of Cast and Hugh. And we are a human experience design firm. And our focus is on really understanding people, their needs, their perceptions, their motivations and then designing experiences to better meet those needs. A lot of our work is within the healthcare space. You know, that term human-centered design,
0: human experience design, and even user-centered design, all of these terms, we hear a lot about them. And in healthcare, we've been talking about these things more and more frequently, but I still think there's a little bit of mystique around what it actually is or what it actually means. Share with me, when you say a human experience design firm, what do you do? What
1: do we do? <laughs> we design experiences for our clients that, that that meet the needs of those they serve. And so when you think about user experience and interestingly really regrew out of a user experienced department of a of a digital ad agency way back when and then have taken that approach and applied it to overall customer experience and experience design and I think what really took us to that place was that addition of the human element and when i think of the difference between for instance you know ux versus cx so you, user experience versus customer experience or human human centered experience design i think about bringing in those emotions bringing in empathy and really understanding the motivations and and what's affecting people and how they're making decisions. So I think of UX certainly has elements of that but it's very focused, you know, we think about okay well you're going on this website show me how you will make an appointment. And then we look to take that experience and make it easier and look for ways that people are getting might be getting caught up, what are their barriers, what are their constraints and how can we create that user experience in such a way that that better meets their needs where in You know, when we look at our human-centered design and experience design from that lens, we're looking at every element of that person's experience. What are their emotions? Um, Emotions is a big part of our work because we want to understand how that is affecting people through their experience with the healthcare system, for example, whether it's through making that appointment or their engagement with the physician or visiting an emergency department. If we can understand that emotional journey, that can help us really improve the experience overall. So I I would say there's a lot of similarities but that's one of the big differences for us is we've incorporated more human centered design into our work, focusing on that emotion. I like that, and I think that that's an important piece, and particularly in healthcare, when
0: we talk about patients and designing designing experiences around the patients and and you know the true humans that are interacting with us from a health system perspective, we often uh, talk about their emotions and what their emotional state is within this experience, but that's sometimes a little bit hard for us to assess. And how do you go about doing that? How do you get
1: emotions brought up in the work that you do? And there's a lot of different ways that we do that. For instance, one way that, that we go through this is through journey mapping. So we'll talk to patients, talk to customers and have them walk through their their journeys with a healthcare system or with any sort of experience and look at it touch point by touch point. And then we start to break down different elements of that. So, so one way we do it is just, ask them how are you feeling during that time and and get to those emotions and and what the difference is is that we're looking at it at the touch points as opposed to just how was the overall experience okay when you checked in and the receptionist didn't look at you and just asked you for your social security number how did you feel at that point okay I, you know i felt like just a number how did you feel during your waiting period. How did you feel during those elements? So that's a big part of it. But then we'll also ask questions about what were you thinking at that time. Tell me about your thought process. Our interview process, whether we're going through a workshop, doing journey mapping, or just doing some one-on-one work, we really dig in so that that people can get beyond the the high level thoughts, the the surface level thoughts, if you will, of their experience, and start really thinking about moment by moment. And that helps us see some trends and see where those experiences maybe hit really challenging points from an emotional period. Maybe they're frustrated. Sometimes we call those boiling points. And then where are the points where they're finding what they're looking for, which we call release points. And we incorporate that from both just straight emotions as well as a lot of analysis of the conversations and how people describe their experiences. Is there more of a reluctance within a clinical space for us to really
0: explore what that patient is feeling? Because I think that many times we've architected a system
1: where we've kind of distanced the user from that actual experience. I think that's a really good point because... We've designed many of our experiences within healthcare around efficiency. You know, how much time do you spend with your PCP normally? I think, I think it's like seven minutes. And people see that. They see that they're on this experience timeline, whether it's a, you know, a visit to an urgent care, an emergency room, a primary care physician, whatever it might be, that's not built around them. It's not built around their needs. They're waiting every step of the process. They ask for information. How long will it take for this test? What can I expect at this point? And they're often given vague answers because we're not we just haven't built The system that way. That's one reason why from a human-centered design perspective, we'd like to take a collaborative approach. And so when we're talking to patients, we're including physicians, we're including CNAs, we're including nurses, we're including that frontline staff, because if we can pull out of that environment that they're in every day, which where they're they're thinking about all of these marks they have to hit and, and how they're going to be efficient, but just talk to patients and understand what that feels like to them, as they're going through the process, it helps build that empathy. And so we could start identifying where are the areas that we can improve this, that isn't necessarily going to hurt our efficiencies and some of these, you know, important process elements that we have to hit, but we can better meet the needs of the patient. It's very important to think about that from that perspective. But to your point, healthcare wasn't designed for that, for that reason. And so th- those are some of the things that we're all working towards. I consider it a noble Pursuit
0: for us to do this. Whenever I hear an organization say, "I want to become more customer centric" or "I want to become more patient focused in the work that we do," in my mind, I'm thinking that's such a noble goal, but it it's not as easy as just asking for their emotions or how they're feeling through the process. It's a much
1: more systematic approach because we have so many considerations. I think the. Understanding the that emotional journey, understanding um, the defining moments of a patient's journey throughout the throughout the process, is a starting point. And then we have to understand well, okay, what are our constraints here? How can we better meet these needs that we've identified within the constraints we have? And so there's times, you know, sometimes we think about that, like like to your point, that that noble cause. If I want to become more patient centered or or, or person centered. And then one of the questions we always ask at the the beginning of engagement is that when you think about this journey, do you want to reimagine it or are you looking to optimize it? that's an important consideration because if we're looking to optimize it then we really have to pay attention to these constraints and think about okay well how much time based on reimbursement how much time do you have with a patient how you know how many patients do we have to see a day you know then we start partnering with process improvement and how do we bring that patient perspective to it so once you get to the experience design there's a lot of different elements that you have to consider. And going back to the question, reimagine versus optimize, if you're reimagining, then we have a little bit more of a blank slate. But again, we're still looking at the physical space, we're looking at resources, you know, how do we make these changes in a resource neutral approach? Because, you know, of course, we always anybody can tell you, well, hire more people, that's an easy solution. But we, we're we looking for solutions that don't necessarily require that. But but look at how we can change that experience based on what we understand about the patient.
0: What you were saying brings to mind something that I, a question that I often have. When you start to work with organizations, who's bringing you into this experience? Does it come from the clinical side or does it come from people that are more focused on the patient experience? I know a health system is very siloed organization and oftentimes whoever brings you into that engagement maybe sets the direction of where you're going with the process.
1: It's certainly a mix, but I would say most often, especially you know, over the last couple of years, it's coming from the marketing side. Uh, There's certainly been that increase in focus in consumerism. And that's played a big role in terms of how people are thinking about how they engage with patients. I've been seeing more and more partnerships between patient experience leaders and marketing leaders, sometimes marketing rolling up a patient experience or even a customer experience role within their part of the organization. But one thing that's powerful uh, about a design thinking approach is that how important collaboration is. What we try to do and what we tell our clients as we get into an engagement is that we have to have a cross-functional team part of this. We can't just be in a silo, whether it's marketing or experience or even clinical, and say, we're going to go out and do and change this experience because it affects everybody. That often becomes a, a powerful part of our projects, and I'm sure any sort of human-centered design project, is that it brings people together. I mean, there's people that come together in our project meetings, as you might imagine, when you're working with a health system, that are shaking hands. Now I'm in pre-COVID times. They're (laughs) meeting each other. (laughs) As soon as I said that, I was like, that feels weird to say. Nobody does that anymore. Uh, Meeting for the first time, but that's powerful because that's a key to any sort of experience design project is that you have to have people bought in from the beginning. It can't be, just just like all experiences, it can't be top down. Everybody has to be part of developing it. And so to do that, we want them involved understanding that patient perspective, co-creating with patients, so that when we get to the point where we have an experience strategy based on all of this work, that everybody feels part of it, they're bought in and they're ready to execute and implement.
0: When you think about customer-first or you know, user-centered or, or human-centered, I should say, oftentimes I say working within health systems, I have said, we're all responsible for advocating on behalf of our customers, advocating on behalf of that patient or, or whoever that customer may be in this experience. And yet it seems that it often is delegated to a particular person that may have experience in their title or there may be marketing in their title. I'm glad to hear that you're starting to see more collaborative projects. But, uh, you know, I think that it also can cause some Challenges when you kick off projects because oftentimes their perception of the problem may be very different
1: from an internal perspective. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And not just perception, but just even knowledge of a problem, or or you know, does that problem exist? That's a big part of any project at the beginning is to really create an, a shared understanding of what we're trying to do here. Uh, we start our projects with what we call a propelling question. It's like a project objective, but it's what what is our goal to do with this project? So, for example, you know, how might we design a more empathetic experience within our emergency department? Now, we're going to build on that throughout the project because a, a key part of design thinking is developing a problem statement when we are going through that process and we build empathy through whether it's through interviews or journey maps or and, and all the other information we have from listening to our customers and patients, we're also then going to define the problem we're trying to solve and confirm that with the patients and make sure that they're aligned with that. Is that the problem you're seeing? Am I describing this correctly? And make sure we're all aligned together from with the internal teams. And then we start ideating. Making sure that we're all on the same page about the problem we're trying to solve is, is incredibly important, absolutely.
0: Imagine that you actually define a problem statement which many people in health systems, they shudder to think about we're, what we're uncovering problems. And then also going back and validating that with actually the people that are part of that. Experience, that's a profound way to approach that problem. And, and it really allows you to, to hone in on that true north, right, of the, what the project's going to be all about.
1: I think that's a core element of human centered design is that we're validating and gaining feedback from the patient or consumer throughout the entire process. So we're basing our defining moments, our emotional journey on what they tell us. We're defining the problem based on what we've learned from them and, and ensuring that the, that they are on the same page with us. We do some ideation with them. We want to hear their ideas. And then as we work to create ideas that understanding constraints and all of those things we talked about before, but we get to ideas that we think may work, we'll test them again. And that's a huge part of design thinking is continuously testing. So bringing patients back in, testing low fidelity prototypes, so meaning we're maybe just showing them a quick drawing on a piece of paper, walking them through a scenario of what it might be like to engage with their physician when their physician is sitting down, looking them in the eye as opposed to standing over them and to get their feedback and make changes or as, as we need to. For us, that's a key part of what we facilitate is just bringing that patient's voice to every step of the process because not only does that help us innovate faster and create solutions faster because we're gaining feedback that might take weeks or months to get otherwise, But we're also going to market, perhaps if we're going to pile it at a location or something like that, we're going to market with something that's already had a tremendous amount of feedback from patients. And so we've set ourselves up that much faster to be successful. And we're hopefully down the path faster, because we've already failed fast with the problems that don't work. The way
0: you're describing it, and and from my experience, I also know it sounds very easy to do this, but it's actually a little bit complex, uh, to say the least. And oftentimes people feel like these projects are are large and almost unattainable.
1: The perception, if we're saying, we're going to look at this blue sky and, and ask our patients to design the perfect experience, the initial reaction is like, Yes, but, but they don't know about this. And, oh, you're not aware of this situation we run into. And I'm not sure if we could work through that department. Certainly there's going to be constraints, but, but a couple of things happen here. I mean, number one, going through this process with patients can help us break down some of those barriers. One of my colleagues always says you as a, as a leader are going to be much more emotionally affected to make decisions through talking to those you serve and hearing their stories and understanding what these barriers might mean to their experience as opposed to seeing it on a spreadsheet. If I see a bunch of numbers on a spreadsheet, I can look at that. That's numbers, set it aside. But one powerful part of human centered design is talking to patients and, 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 you know, we want cross-functional teams to hear from people about how this affects them. So that can break down those barriers, number one. But then the other part of this is that if we have constraints, then let's make them part of this process because that actually makes people can, can lead to more creativity When we design with constraints, we could start thinking about problems in different ways and come up with solutions that meet the needs in in a creative way that we may not have come up with when we just said, you know, sky's the limit. I mean, and we do that a lot in our process. We'll often say, as we go through an ideation process, we'll say there there are no apps allowed. Because of course, everybody can say, there's not very problems you can give to people and they don't say, well, you know, if there was an app for that. And that's the easy way out. Because what we want to do is find the solution and then if we could make an app for that solution great but let's work on the solution the constraint based ideation is a is a is a core part of of making our project successful I love that.
0: no apps allowed. It allows you to think about things differently. And I think that's the whole point here is that this process allows you to think in a completely different perspective because it actually puts you in the shoes of your users, of the humans that are going through your experience.
1: I touched on this earlier, but just that idea of taking it out of the clinic, taking it out of the hospital, whether it's a workshop or an interview, you know we're we're often doing it in a in a different place. Everybody's disarmed. Some of the things we do to just help with that is is we work in small groups. We encourage everybody to dress casually so there isn't a bunch of, uh, you know, quote unquote suits around that are in charge of things. We're all on the same page. We build an environment in these workshops that's very collaborative. What it leads to is the staff and the leadership open up a little bit more, and they're more open to hearing feedback, and they think about it differently. And it also makes the the patients and customers that we're speaking with that we've recruited, they're more comfortable, when they see it's an open environment, they can share, it becomes a much more valuable conversation. And so we all learn so much more about the experience, which opens up our ideas so much more. I've worked in a lot of organizations
0: that have embraced Agile as a the way they address problem-solving within their organization. A big focus of Agile is what they call getting into the Gemma, going into the workplace. I actually am a big advocate for getting out of the workplace, getting out of the Gemma, because it allows you to think about things differently.
1: There's times where, where any of these environments could be more beneficial than others, but I think that out of the workplace, especially when it comes to healthcare... Uh, just can make such a big difference because you know we want to have a truly open mind and and really be open to hearing the good and the bad and for any of us right that in our work that's that's challenging to hear but that feedback can be so valuable because it, it helps all of us improve and it helps all of us do our jobs or do anything in our lives better when we're when we're open to hearing that feedback and can really take it objectively and and make sense of it and work with it and that's I think what human-centered design that's a core part of it is just being open to listening to perspectives knowing that they might not be the same perspectives as yours but understanding that we can look at those and it can help us create a a a better place for for the care we provide or the services we provide or
0: whatever it might be how do i start to understand like if this is a problem that it, it Can be, be best served through a human experience design approach.
1: One way we think about it is, is this idea of wicked problems, and that's a term that's that's thrown around from time to time. And you know what it refers to are are complex problems where there's not really that obvious answer. And I think those are the problems that lend themselves most appropriately to human-centered design and 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 design thinking collaborative approach. You know, when we have those problems that there's a black and white answer, there's uh, it's either X or it's Y. Those aren't necessarily going to help us. But when we're looking at, at open-ended questions that we know that you know either we're just not sure what what that answer could be it could go or it could go a lot of different directions those are the type of areas that that bringing in that perspective that outside perspective can be really Key to solving, and and it can be big or small. For many of the challenges that, that we take on with our clients are these big challenges. You know, how do we rethink about redesigning uh, an urgent care? How do we look at uh, the type of care that we're providing to our most acute patients? You know, we did a project, a design project around the the experience that that transplant patients and have uh, through you know going through a six month process with a hospital system. So it could be in a lot of different areas, but also it can be applied to to many different problems so we you know one thing we do is we'll do a lot of training with our clients so that they can take this design thinking approach and apply it to their day-to-day work which which many of them do and it's something that that people can do because it's really as you said it's complex to execute at times especially when it's a complex problem but it's also really easy to consider it's about building empathy making sure you're talking to the people you're serving defining a problem and ensuring that you're aligned with those people that that you're serving about what that problem is, and then ideating and testing and gaining feedback and quickly setting aside the things that aren't working and then building on what is working. And so it's the type of thing that can start small, and you see successes, and then you can start applying it to some of your big, more uh, wicked problems, so to speak. And this industry
0: is facing a lot of wicked problems right now, as we speak. Well, Steve, as I suspected, we could talk about this forever. You know, if people listening in want to learn a little bit more about you and your organization, what's a good
1: way for them to find out about your uh, company? Please visit us at our website. It's castinhue.com, So C-A-S-T-A-N-D-H-U-E.com. We have case studies on there with, with several of the organizations we've partnered with, uh, as well as on our insights page, a number of uh, Takes that that we have, especially you know, recently around COVID nineteen and how we're thinking about that, and, and how you know we've moved from a lot of in person work to virtual work and and things of that nature. So, I encourage anybody to reach out to me. My my contact info is right there. I'd love to share any any thoughts or, or uh, work that people would be interested in, as well as answer any questions.
0: Well, and you forgot to mention,
1: Steve, that you're also uh, you you have a podcast yourself. It's called Designing Next. It's going to be really focused on innovation and experience design and and how we're thinking about the future so our focus is to talk to practitioners around that so that's going to be launching in mid-july and one of our first guests will be russ maloney from banner health who leads their innovation team or is a big part of their innovation teams i definitely look out for that for folks and and uh, i appreciate you bringing that up well steve i really appreciate the conversation thank you for your time today thanks so much chris i've really enjoyed it great conversation
2: Thanks again for uh, coming on the show. Certainly appreciate Steve and his uh, time, his expertise, his willingness. Uh, Love to having him on. Great to uh, pick up some of his insights and tips. We are coming to the end of the episode. We normally talk about conferences here, and when I say conferences, I mean like ones you go to and you're there in person and stuff like that. There are not any of those <laughs> coming. <laughs> and and it's not it's not healthcare it's not healthcare marketing specific but just that's just where we are right now there are several virtual ones that are coming down the pipe and some that are you know obviously ones that we we know well and um so you know we've got hmps which is in uh, is it in august also healthcare internet conference in the fall you know some virtual opportunities there as well so and as things get closer you'll be hearing and we'll be talking more and more about that stuff so well uh recommendations what what uh what do you have today
0: Reed, you know that I'm a video game player. I like to play video games, and we have a couple consoles here in our household, one of which is the Wii, the Nintendo Wii. Over the last couple weeks, I picked up Mario Odyssey. I'm a big Super Mario Brothers fan. Um, I grew up playing those games. I'm not sure if you have, yeah. So this is the newest installment for the Wii. It's called uh, Mario Odyssey. It has all the great elements of a, a great Mario game, in which there's platforms and bosses, and you collect coins, and you you know you go through d- various different things. There's a little bit of a twist in that your Mario now has a little cap that he can throw at things, and that gives a little bit more interactivity. But here's what I love the most about it, Reed. It's a one player game primarily, but at any point in time, you can actually hand over the controller to a second player to join in. So my wife's sitting next to me, I hand over the controller and now she could control the cap. And she could go out and do things. And it's kind of fun. And at any point in time, you can vacillate between one player to two player. It's such a great game dynamic that I just thought it would be a really great recommendation. If you have a Wii in your household uh, and you have kids, because it's very much a kid-friendly game, in a very seamless way, go from one player to two player. This is a great game for it. So my recommendation is Super Mario Odyssey.
2: Very cool. I'll check that out. I'm going a little different direction. I am uh, recommending Water. Not just, not just water in and of itself, but I figured that'd probably trigger some people. But anyway, um, no, no, no. I'm, I'm recommending a particular type of water. So everybody likes the sparkling water, right? And I, I do as well. The problem I have, though, with most sparkling water is that it's flavored, right? Like it's got some sort of a flavor and some of them are okay. Some of them are not particularly good, you know, et cetera. Well, I found a sparkling water that actually has real fruit in it, not a fruit flavor. It's actual fruit. Anyway, so the drink is called Spindrift Spindrift Sparkling Water, and they have grapefruit, blackberry, cucumber, lemon, raspberry, lime, orange, mango, strawberry, cranberry, raspberry, lime, pineapple, and then half and half. Half and half is like kind of a tea flavor with uh, lemon. Lime is probably my favorite so far. I haven't had many of these. And its it really is like having a sparkling water with actual lime juice in it because that's what it is.
0: Man, they're just, they're way better. Well, I love Spindrift. I haven't had the lime though, so I'll have to pick that up. But yeah, that's a great recommendation. There you go. Awesome. Awesome.
2: Well, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. That is still the number one way that you can help us out. We certainly appreciate all the support, especially over the last several months, but more specifically, the last several years. And so if there's anything we can do, anybody we can interview, topics we can cover that would be helpful, useful, of interest, et cetera, please let us know. We would love to, uh, love to hear from you. And uh, for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.